Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. We learn a lot about the world around us through the internet. That seems obvious. A person or a brand's digital footprint tells us a lot, but sometimes it's kind of without us even realizing it. Think of it this way. This sort of communication is relatively new, us using social media to find out more about brands and people. 15 years ago, if you wanted to learn about a new coffee shop in your neighborhood, let's say, you couldn't just go to their Instagram page and see what sort of content they were posting. But now, if something opens up around the corner from me, I can go to their Instagram feed and probably tell a lot more about them than just what's on their menu or what hours they're open. David Tortellini is an incoming graduate student at Purdue University and studies food and digital spaces. Last year, he gave a talk about how coffee brands use their Instagram pages after the murder of George Floyd to galvanize their communities to participate in fundraisers, attend protests, and take action. David's work exposes the importance of digital platforms. At once, they can both fuel and connect communities and display one's values, but at the same time, they can also be spaces that propagate power dynamics and disparities in access to resources. Social media and digital spaces are powerful tools. That's probably obvious. Used well, they have the potential to harness collective action, uplift voices, and help folks find people who care about the same things they do. Beyond what's obvious, social media is a connector. And if you use social media or digital spaces to make decisions about the world around you, which at this point, we all do, then this is a must-listen episode. Here's David. David, I was hoping you could start by introducing yourself for everybody. Sure. My name is David Tortolini. I'm an incoming graduate student at Purdue University in the American Studies Department. David, did you grow up with coffee in your life? Kind of, sort of. My parents drink coffee, like they drink maybe two, three cups a day. But for me, I always grew up drinking yerba mate. My mom is Argentinian and my dad is BIPOC from the United States. But growing up, for me, it was always mate, mate, mate with the bombilla. Like I grew up on all that. But I didn't start drinking coffee until I was about 25 when I needed a pick-me-up one day. And I don't drink energy drinks and my friends gave me a blonde rose from Starbucks. And it was like a aha moment. Tell me about that aha moment. I always knew coffee to be like something off-putting for me. But when I had it that time, 
it just tasted like a complexity of flavors. And it was like, okay, this is why people love coffee. I can see why people love coffee black. And I just jumped head first into finding out about specialty coffees, finding flavor profiles, trying to understand where coffee regions are, like the different regions, the varietals, the seasons, how even the amount of rain can change the way a coffee is going to be roasted the following year. And then the big, like, almost music in the background kind of moment was when I had Tandem Coffees. They had this coffee with a blueberry note, and I tasted blueberries, and I was like, wow, this is so complex than I could ever even have imagined. It's funny that you mentioned the tasting note blueberries because I feel like if you took a poll of like different coffee folks and their aha moment or their, wow, this is something totally different that I didn't expect, I bet you at least half of them would say that blueberries are part of that journey. I I know for me it is. I had a coffee from, I think it was from Irving Farm. It was a natural Ethiopia called... um, Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's, but it was a natural Ethiopia. And I remember tasting blueberries in that. And I was like, this is so different from anything I've ever had. But blueberries kind of come up a lot in these tasting notes. I think Veronica Grimm of, of Glitter Cat actually just did an episode of Salejo's podcast. Salejo is a food writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, and she has a podcast called Extra Spicy. And I think Veronica mentioned saying the word blueberry like 23 times. Yeah. I- I wonder what it is that why we have such a connection with blueberries and coffee. It's This isn't part of my research, but I think it could just be maybe the acidity. It could be a similar acidity profile or the tannins of the coffee. Just something about coffee and blueberries. They just mesh so well together. Do you think, I know you said that this is probably not part of your studies, and I wonder if this is a question that maybe you might know somebody who would know the answer to this, but do you think that blueberries specifically have a distinct flavor that's like not replicable by other things. I, I think so. Cause when you think of like artificial blueberry flavoring, right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a man-made attempt of trying to make what a blueberry can be synthesized as. And it's totally different than when you're drink when you're trying to eat or even drinking something with wild blueberries in it. Yeah. Or even farm raised blueberries. And I think blueberries is one of those things, at least in the West, because when you look at how flavor is inherently part of a colonial process, like blueberries is just, I don't want to say ubiquitous term, but it's just like a flavor term. When you think of a blueberry and automatically you think of the flavors on your tongue. Yeah, that's a good point. And also thinking to this reference point as being specific to maybe Western countries, I wonder what would be like the analogous flavor call for maybe somebody living like in a different part of the world like what's the thing that like this region of the world all associates as like this powerful moment together or is there another flavor that like so many people have tasted in coffee in like a different region of the world that has really opened up their eyes I wonder if that if that experience translates exactly this is when I'm thinking instantly of I I hope I'm seeing a right of a Ramsey coffee out of India where they're doing some of the craziest like most powerful decolonial process work in food in general that like that's something that i think is right up their alley in their description because i'm thinking of the james hoffman video where they were talking about the decolonial practices of strawberries 
tell me a little bit about that because I think that I watched that a while ago. But just for people who haven't who haven't seen that, can you describe it a little bit? Yeah. So the video, if anybody gets a chance to watch the video, it's riveting. But when we think of flavors and coffee, when we think of not doesn't necessarily have to be coffee. It can be wine because wine is a big thing that people in academics talk about when it comes to flavors is we look at this using uh, almost a Western lens. We look at it looking at thinking like everybody around the world knows what a strawberry is, but not really. Not a lot of people have access to fruits like strawberries or they'll say something like stone fruit, but not a lot of people know what a stone fruit necessarily is. Like I still get mixed up when I see the word stone fruit on a coffee bag. But when we have collectives and groups like um, Jen Apodoka with Mother Tongue, who says things like gummy bears or peach rings, we all know what peach rings are because peach rings is just, it's candy. We know, hey, it tastes sour like a piece of candy or it's going to taste kind of gummy bear-like. We know that experience globally more so than saying it's going to taste like Northwestern summer sage. That's a really good point. Like... There are certain things that I'm thinking about this in two ways. Number one, there are certain things that are global, that are international. But number two, describing things with like really to be really specific so that people can recall them. Like stone fruit's not specific. Like, is that a nectarine? Is that a plum? Is that a this? Is that a that? But why can't we get more specific? Or can we identify the thing in that flavor? So like saying sour candies, maybe someone hasn't had a sour candy, but they know what sour is like. There are ways to be more specific and intentional with the language that you use to bring more people to the table so they can at least have a reference point to understand what you're talking about. Exactly. It's 100% that. And I think one of the, this is one of the reasons why I love the coffee industry so well is that so many people have been so receptive to trying to change the way that they describe flavor and contextualize flavor. People don't realize that like it makes skull, like I'm an, I would say I'm a budding scholar. It makes people like me who do research on how do we discuss flavor and food and food cultures and digital spaces specifically, how are we talking about flavor in these spaces? Spaces. When I'm looking at the coffee industry, I'm seeing people talking about experience as a flavor. And then it makes me look at the world a little differently. It's like, hey, how do I experience wine as a flavor? How do I experience something when somebody says this tastes very bitter? Very bitter could be a good flavor or a bad flavor. What? Speaking of that, you're a scholar. You study food and digital spaces. What brought you specifically into kind of the specialty coffee fold? Like what drew you to this industry beyond just being like an avid fan of coffee? I have so many friends in the specialty coffee industry in Virginia. I have friends who are who are baristas and still are baristas, friends who are coffee managers, roasting managers, even coffee shop owners. And seeing like being immersed in their world, because I I consider myself an at-home barista. Like I have the whole setup. I have like I now just got a W60 from Hario. I have the like kettle. I have the good grinders. I have access to that. It was just an interest in the in the industry. When I had my aha moment, I like I said, I jumped like I didn't jump feet first. I like reverse one and a half, one and a half, <laughs> a competitive diving maneuver, like into the coffee cup essentially, and just 
I'm I'm still swimming in it. I'm still loving it. Yeah, but like you're not you're not just like a, a a person who like makes a lot of coffee at home and is like really interested in specialty coffee. Like you're like part of the discourse. Recently, not recently, maybe this was like a year and a half ago, but both you and I gave talks at a thing called the Barista League. And I remember seeing your name. I was like, I don't know who this person is, but like you gave this really cool talk about how digital spaces can convey values and how do you show true solidarity and commitment to community through Instagram and other like social media platforms. And I was like, this is a person who's like in it. Like this isn't a casual observer. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think what brought about my interest in that discussion I gave was I'm a minority. I'm a proud minority. There's no way that I hide it. Every day where I walk, I'm a proud minority. And when the murder of George Floyd happened, it it hit me just like it hit everybody else. And it, it hit me hard. And I was fortunate enough to have amazing friends around the world who were posting these powerful messages. And like I said, my friends, they are coffee shop managers and they actually own shops and roasteries now. And I saw how they were engaging with it. And then I saw how the coffee industry was engaging with the discourses happening. And it like, as a scholar, cause I was still doing my master's research then and just like piqued my interest. Like, Hey, how are my friends creating discourse and change in our, com- I don't want to say little community cause the Tidewater region and in large part Richmond are massive communities. Like how are their posts changing our communities and actually got to see the, see it happen. Like my friends organized fundraisers. They organized protests. My friends even organized like a, essentially like a rallying point at their coffee shop where people were almost given free cups of coffee as like donations for helping out. Right, right. That makes sense. Let's backtrack a little bit because I want to talk about your research and kind of what you're studying to give people a framework for how you've been able to use that lens to kind of look at the coffee industry. So can you talk a little bit about what you're studying and what your background is? I was at Old Dominion University. I graduated from the Institute of the Humanities. And my focus of research is looking at how we discuss food items and flavor in digital spaces and how it affects minority populations. How can we say something like, my mom is Argentinian and culturally raised Argentinian. How can somebody say something like, all Argentinians eat rice and beans online and it becomes like almost canonical in some, in some of these online spaces, but we don't really eat rice and beans in Argentina like that. Or you could say something like, all chorizos taste the same, when all chorizos don't taste the same. I'm a chorizo aficionado. I love chorizo. Give me a chorizo. <laughs> I'm the happiest person in the world. And I can tell you, all chorizos don't taste the same. But when you go in these online spaces, they're like, yeah, they all taste the same. Or stuff like dulce de leche. Dulce de leche tastes the same when it doesn't. There's variances. There's different ingredients. There's different complexities. And Another example is empanadas. Not all empanadas are cooked the same. Every country has its own different version or variation of the empanada. So don't say, hey, my mom fries empanadas. When we don't fry empanadas in my house, we bake them. Mm-hmm. So, so. so it seems like you, let me see if I can try to summarize it. Uh, so it seems like you look at 
how essentially like we create ideas of like what is true and what is not about food via digital spaces. Like, are you specifically looking at how that happens online? For my um, main research, yes. We can also think it's part of the continuation of the historical discourses we've seen in cookbooks. Mm -hmm. We've seen in food television shows. We've seen in reality television. Like I'm thinking of reality shows popping into my mind where a cook from overseas cooks a dish from where they're from and they're being told, oh, well, people aren't going to like it because it's too weird. It's too different. And one show that I'm thinking of in particular is from the UK. They were like, you have to kind of like Englishize it a little bit, kind of like gussy it up for the British audience. And in a way, it's like it can also be seen almost as a form of violence, as a way to say, hey, your food's not good enough to be eaten in this country unless you do X, Y, and Z. And then we'll say it's good, but we're going to wait for like hipsters to start eating it and for them to start liking it before the general population will want to try it. That's so interesting. It seems so wild how much we 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 look for validation of a thing to be good or not based on like very specific populations. And we just write off like the taste and interest of like other countries, like other huge populations of people where like this is a very standard food or this is a very accepted way for someone to eat. And it's also like not even testing the thing to see if it's like I don't know. Like that just seems, that seems so complex and layered. And I imagine that it must be frustrating. This must be frustrating, but like rewarding research in a way. It is. It really is. Like, I feel like there are moments where you just want to scream in frustration when you see some of the like television shows or apps or even, or even like Instagram or TikTok, the way they describe minority food cultures and, or minority cooking but then you see moments where like in the coffee industry where we see Arsame and other other I don't want I don't want to call them barista activists. I just want to call them the straight in general up activists who are trying to fight these discourses and trying to make things more equitable and fair. And so at the same time, it's like I see both sides and it's just it's I love it. I'm always excited by it. And I'm just so passionate about this. Let's let's shift back to your conversation that you had or the talk that you gave for the Barista League. So you gave this talk about digital spaces and you looked at Instagram to kind of parse out different ways that coffee companies kind of from like the small level, like maybe a shop manager or a small coffee shop to like the bigger level to like businesses to media companies. And you talked about how they essentially shared community and like shared their values via social media. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the premise of that talk and like what some of maybe the findings were of that. Yeah, definitely. So like I said, the premise of that talk was I was spurred by my, honestly, my friends in, in general, the coffee industry's reaction to the murder of George Floyd. I was spurred on by looking at how, because I've taken digital media classes I was spurred on by looking at how scholars like Dr. Christian Fuchs and Dr. Sophia Noble talk about places like Instagram, TikTok, even Google are always going to be inherently zones of power struggles. How can community be built, destroyed, and rebuilt essentially in these digital places that 
power isn't equally shared. We always want power to be equally shared online, but power isn't. There's so many different theories and ideas and schools of thought about it. But I was looking at how power is created and shared in terms of helping out social activism movements or giving recognition and credence to minority bodies during a turbulent, and it still is a turbulent time in, in the United States. And I looked at, for example, with the local roaster, how did somebody who's a coffee shop manager, how did he create discourse, mainly with his customers and friends and family groups, how did he create discourse to help shed light on the plight of minority baristas and how, or how minorities are mistreated? How did he create space? And when I looked at the local coffee shop, they did a fundraiser. So I looked at how they created discourse by creating a fundraiser at like a shop level. Then I did a roaster that's nationally known, but more essentially like regionalized. And then I looked at the media because the media is always going to be a key point, in, of course, in just life in general. So I looked at how did the coffee media react? How did the coffee media give space and credence and change their ways to help marginalize the minority bodies create and build community. Why was this important for you to look at? Or like, what did you want people to take away from this conversation? I think it was important to look at because it showed how community is created. Mm-hmm. And I also want people to know that these digital spaces online are always going to be unequal. That people who have 1.5 million followers are going to have way more voice, credence, and power than somebody who has 879. That's a good point. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of digital spaces and power? Because I don't know that those two things, I think when you say it like that, that makes sense. Like, of course, somebody with 1.2 million followers is going to have more power than somebody with like 837. But I don't know that that like tie is necessarily intuitive. No, definitely, definitely. I'm thinking, I use this analogy of the high school cafeteria. Mm -hmm. Because I always think of, I like to think of some of these apps, like it reminds me of high school. And I think of fashion. When the really cool, really popular kid in the school wears this avant-garde shirt from a band that they discovered from a friend of a friend, but the band is something like, I want to say, LCD Sound System, my favorite band. But then you have like the skater punk or this indie kid who's been wearing the same LCD sound system shirt for the last two years every other day. But everybody's like, oh yeah, now you're copying the cool kid. And this kid's like, no, this is the shirt I've been wearing for the last two years. But everybody's like, no, 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 the cool person's wearing it. So you're following them. Yeah. And that's like the kind of power struggle I think of is like, hey, you have these big brands, these influencers, these people with a ton of power, or you've, it doesn't even have to be people. Keep, we even noticed that even nations have power in these digital spaces that they're using their voices and the whole entire world is listening. But then you have people who are activists, scholars, even community members. We've been like, we've been saying that for the last 15, 20, 50, 100 plus years. And now y'all want to listen to this. That's really interesting. I think that that analogy, number one, was incredibly powerful. But two, like, how do you rectify something like that? I don't know that there's an answer to it. But is it that cool, like going back to the analogy, is it that cool kid saying, oh, 
like I wasn't wearing this shirt first, like that guy over there was wearing it first. But what if that kid didn't even like I'm just trying to think of like, how do we how do we distribute power in digital spaces in a way that does feel more equitable? Again, I don't know if there's an answer to that, but I don't think there's a real answer just yet. Because we, I've seen, we will see some things where somebody like will tag somebody, will tag the person they got the outfit from. I'm thinking like Kim, Kim, somebody like Kim Kardashian, who will tag or mention saying, "Hey, this is a person's brand. I got this from." It could be a small shop owner, and the next you know they're gaining power and their shop is blowing up. Mm-hmm. But we're not seeing it enough with everything else just yet. I think it could slowly start happening. But we just, it's just not getting enough traction. Right. I think earlier you also said something about community building. And I think that that's an important term because I think it's really easy for people in the coffee industry to talk about the word community as a given, as opposed to a thing that you build. And your digital space is part of that too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I think having a digital space that represents the shop, the idea of the values is very important in the coffee industry and in the food industry and pretty much almost every business in general. For example, I'm thinking of when I look up at shop, I look up new shops to go to when I'm traveling to a different city for conferences or for fun, I immediately look at their Instagram page to say, hey, is this the vibe that I'm looking for? Is this the kind of drink that I like? Because somebody can say, try this shop. Somebody can say, try shop. Oli, because I'm just using Oli because my dog is right next to me. They say Tribe Shop Oli, but they may have a ton of drinks that I may not necessarily find appealing. But somebody else could say, go to shop Chester's Place. And Chester's Place could have the wildest drinks imaginable that's like mind-blowing pushing the coffee industry. But they only have like 15 followers because they're brand new. How would you make a decision in that situation? And I guess that goes back to like the essential question. Like, how do you know a coffee shop is quote unquote good? Yeah, it's, of course, it's a little bit about trying, but it's also like, is this a community that I want to be a part of? Do you think that people are conscious of how much decision making they make based on a per- like a person or a brand or a place's digital presence? I think we are now. Mm-hmm. I think this pandemic has definitely shown how much credence we've given to digital spaces and digital trends and digital footprints. Because I'm thinking of, look at all the, look at all the dance trends we saw in the early days of the pandemic. Like how people were like, hey, I'm basing what I'm doing, I'm basing on how I'm having fun based on what I'm seeing on digital spaces. I'm actually working on a really cool project with another scholar we're looking at like feta baked pasta on TikTok. How is this influencing the way we look at Mediterranean and especially Italian dishes? And something that I think I, I lament about a lot in coffee. I was just reading a book about like the history of brunch from, from, from one of the colleagues that he actually recommended I talk to. And we'll probably have a conversation with her in the upcoming weeks. But I was reading this book about brunch and I realized that coffee is not as good at talking about its own history. But with like this digital footprint that we're leaving, like we will have a history that's recorded in just a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think, I think we're seeing better, especially in terms of minority voices. We're seeing more, I'm seeing more and more minority voices and marginalized communities speaking in the coffee industry than before. I'm thinking of people like Get You Some Gear, who have created a community 
for marginalized and minority coffee and like baristas. And that's a community being built. And that's a com- that's people who have connections and are building friendships based on that. Right. And it's completely outside of any physical space or any like need for, let's say, capital to like buy a building or rent a space for a coffee shop or something like that. Like it's allowing more people into the conversation because the barrier to entry is so much lower. Exactly. I think of um, cosplay when it comes to these like community building spaces that I, I don't want to say niche, but a little bit are smaller than what we typically would consider. Mm-hmm. Because look at how cosplay, this is so dating myself. I'm ready. When we're looking at like Zanga, LiveJournal, even early MySpace, where we we would see cosplay communities build these fan pages for either their community or just for individuals. And people were able to build friendships and relationships. People have been married based on them meeting through cosplay groups online. Right. I think I just saw a chart recently that was like, tracking how people met their spouses over like the last hundred years. And like, I was so surprised. This is maybe silly for me to be surprised by this, but I was so surprised by how many people in like the 50s, 60s and 70s were married to like their neighbors. Like, I can't even imagine that now because like, obviously, you know, we grew up in a digital era, but I think about like being online, like growing up in the digital era, being online, getting on Facebook for like the first time in like the early 2000s. And so much of the connections that I've made since then as like an adult have been through digital spaces. That chart showed that like now, like almost like I think half of people meet their spouses online. Yeah. These digital spaces are integral in our life. Companies, all companies are realizing now, but I remember when these digital spaces are being created, like early Instagram and stuff and people were like, Oh, it's just a trend. It's not going to really happen. It's not going to go down like that. And it's totally has. Think about how much of our everyday lives we can do online now. We can go grocery. We can do our doctor's appointments online now. Right. For me, that's mind blowing because I, I would never have done a virtual doctor's appointment 15 plus years ago. But now I'm like, oh, okay. I was watching like an old episode of 30 Rock, maybe season one or season two. And that's a show that I would consider like pretty modern. But they had flip phones in the first two seasons. And I was like, oh, this was not that long ago that like we wouldn't have had access to Instagram on our phones. Like we wouldn't have had our emails on our phones. Like maybe some people had Blackberries, but now I'm like, after this phone call, like I'll probably check my email on my phone, even though my computer is in front of me. Um, But it's just interesting to see how much of that, our connection to digital spaces has changed over time, but how influential it's been to like our everyday lives. And I'm wondering as as we're kind of thinking of last thoughts in this conversation, what are ways that coffee shops can, or or any coffee brand really, can think about their digital footprint? Do you think that people are taking them seriously enough, or do you think that like there needs to be more investment? And I don't know, that's kind of like a loose question there. So take in whatever direction you want. I think it's 50-50, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I see some shops that are very proactive in their digital footprints. They're on the honest and talking about to their targeted audience. The honest when it comes to saying, hey, this is what we're doing. They're essentially showing their everyday lives, their everyday shop to shop running online. And the you know, other shops who are just using it just to post a picture, just to hope that somebody's gonna cruise through the shop. I think it's a little bit of 50-50 where we saw some shops still have this mentality that 
this is just it's kind of like putting a picture in the newspaper like back in the day like we just do like a newspaper advertisement they're using it as that but other shops are like hey we can actually build a community and engage with our favorite customers and engage with people who want to ask us questions yeah it seems like Maybe I'm wrong in this, but it seems like people seem to know that they need to have like, let's say an Instagram account or they need to have some sort of digital platform, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily seem like everybody has taken that next step mentally to say like, oh, but this means something like what I put on here means something beyond just like, here's a latte, please come in. Our hours are like seven to six. Yeah, no, no, definitely. It's, I think it's just a changing the way shops are being run now. Look, the shop's have changed so much within the last five years that it's almost mind blowing. While the way we see stuff like how point of sale is happening, how small independent shops are doing drive-through services or what is it? They do like pickup counters. We're seeing that happening, but I think it, I just think it's a, it's a lot of change happening in these shops. And some people are kind of putting the digital spaces as like the afterthought when they need to put them in the forethought. Yeah, no, I would agree with that because so much can be conveyed through what you see online, but also like it helps identify your, not necessarily your mission. I don't want to get like too preachy, but like what you're about, like what you, what you want people to know about you. And I think that, I don't even think we talked about it in this conversation, but something I think about a lot is like how, how to differentiate ourselves in the market. Like sometimes I think people are like specialty coffee is oversaturated and I would disagree with that. I would say that like, it's not that we're oversaturated, it's that we're all the same and there's ways to differentiate like who you are versus like who your neighbor is. Um, As long as you think about it, as long as you really say like, this is who I am or this is what the shop is about and I need to find ways to communicate that. And I think having a really strong digital footprint is part of that. Yeah, that is exactly it. Is we, you just have to be you. People are trying to keep up with the Joneses, but I come from like the punk DIY scene where people love to express themselves. People express self-expression is tantamount in the scenes. And I think we're, I'm seeing more and more coffee shops kind of having that kind of ethos. So like, yeah, this is us. This is our community. We're part of this neighborhood. So these are some of the community members that are, ne- that are walking through. Let's be part of the community. Let's talk more about our community versus let's trying to act and look like everybody else. David, is there anything you want people to know about you or listening to you that you'd like people to take away from this conversation? That digital spaces, of course, we all know that they're here. That power is always going to be a little different in them. But like Dr. Sophia Noble talks about that in the Algorithms of Oppression, the book, is that they're always going to be almost unequal. But what we're noticing now is, especially in the specialty coffee industry, is that people are, by being themselves, by having a voice, to give them voices to the marginalized, to the minority communities. And we're starting to see, it's not even a trend, I essentially call it almost like a mini revolution of change that I'm super excited for. And I can't wait to see what happens in 10 to 15 years when I reflect on like today's conversation. David, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Of course. That was David Tortellini, an incoming graduate student at Purdue University in the American Studies Department. 
We actually talked about so much in this episode that I couldn't fit everything in. So next week, we will be releasing a subscriber-only digital short, I guess, uh, audio extra. I got digital on the brain. And that's available only to paying subscribers. So if you are interested in supporting Boss Barista through a financial contribution, please go to bossbarista.substack.com slash subscribe. You can subscribe for as little as six months, six bucks a month. Uh, I kind of hate saying this, but it's like the cost of a fancy drink maybe made with oat milk. Maybe it has a flavor in it. And then you leave a tip, six bucks. So if you can, please support the podcast through a financial contribution. If you can't, no big deal. Share this episode, engage with us on social media, and we will see you in two weeks. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.